Well, hello to everybody out there in podcast land. You're listening to Cinematic Horizons. It is our chronological journey through the films of Steven Spielberg. I'm your host, Brandon Davis. And joining me is my friend and co-host, Mr. Craig McFarland. How's it going, Craig? I'm doing well. I just got back from the beach and I had, uh, you know, a little scare uh, in the beach. There was some kind of kid running around with like a fin on his back. It was very terrifying. Very terrifying. That actually happened. (laughs) Almost like the summer of 75, isn't it? That is. It's almost like the summer of 75 in a town called Amity. 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 Horror. Almost. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Actually, this is this is a nice sort of mile marker for us, Craig, because I feel like as great as Duel and Sugarland Express is, they were kind of prologue to I think what this episode is. We are really at the first marking of Steven Spielberg as a real force in the film industry. We are talking about Jaws from 1975, a milestone in so many ways. And I'm, I'm, I'm really anxious to uh, get to talk to you about this. Yeah, it's going to be really great because uh, it's, it's wild that this is his third film. And of course he's done a lot of TV before this, but to go out there and really the industry kind of expected this to not perform very well. There was so many uh, stories from the sets about how the visual effects weren't working correctly. The shark wasn't working correctly. And it seemed like, you know, going back and kind of listening to some docudramas about this time frame, uh, Wondery did a great podcast series on this uh, film, but also uh, listen, reading and kind of just seeing some interviews from this time. This was kind of like hell on water to film. And it's just incredible that it becomes what, people say is the first blockbuster, the first summer blockbuster in 1975, which will lead, of course, to the second wild uh, summer blockbuster in 77 in Star Wars and the parallels that, you know, the that will intersect later on with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas as well. But it's just incredible that we get to talk about this film so early in his career because it's awesome that he was able to do it so early in his career. And we've talked about so many times, you know, Spielberg really crosses the line of every genre. And, uh, you know, he he dabbled in some suspense with Duel, but here he's going on full suspense and crossing even into the, into the horror genre a little bit. I think Jaws does for the ocean what Psycho did for the shower 15 years earlier. It took something that nobody thought anything about and suddenly brought this huge phobia around going to the beach. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because it's not even just like the ocean. I remember as a kid being in the pool and being worried about a shark somehow, like, you know, because once you see Jaws and I think that a lot of people watch it at a young age, it's one of those seminal films that I feel like still even to this day, people are watching as one of those like gateway movies into suspense and into horror. And once you watch it, like you never look at the water the same. And to think that a film can have that level of impact on a society really is pretty cool. And uh, for him to be able to have this, it's just great. You know, before we dive in, sorry, I didn't really mean that pun. You all, anybody that knows me from my Ted Lasso podcast knows that I like my puns. I didn't really mean that one, but I thought that 
uh, much like we do on some of our other shows, I think we should do some housekeeping really quickly. And in particular, we're starting to get a couple of ratings um, and on Apple Podcasts. And I think it's great if we can share those at the top of every episode. I'd love to hear your feedback as well. So make sure you go out there and rate us and you'll hear, hear us read it on a future episode. We'll read them all, even if they're one-star reviews. But this one happens to be a five-star review from John in Pineville. And it says, so far, so good. Said, became a fan of Craig's through Ted Lasso's cast. And I'm excited to hear Brandon's take on Steven Spielberg's filmography. Hope the episodes stretch out a little. 30 minutes is nowhere near enough. Eagerly awaiting the next pod. I think that, you know, it depends on the film, right? <laughs> uh, I would say that Duel and Sugarland Express, they were really fun movies, but there wasn't like a ton of meat there to dive into. So I'm just excited to talk about Jaws with you today. Yeah. And for anyone who listens to my show, Front Row Classics, you'll remember in the summer of 2020, uh, my co-host at the time, Eric Flick, and our friend Ryan Lutens did a very thorough episode of Dissecting Jaws. So um, you can hear a lot of the background and trivia. I don't know that we'll quite get into the meat and bones of all of that in this episode, but um, it'd be a great companion piece to this episode to listen to as well. And uh, so, so yeah, but I'm excited, Craig, to get your take on this because I've never talked to you about this movie. So I just kind of want to, uh, first off, just kind of gauge your experience with Jaws. Like, do you remember the first time you ever saw Jaws and uh, how recently had you seen it? I think it'd probably been two decades since I've watched this film. I mean, it was probably one of those like summer of when I was 11, 12, 13 years old. And I didn't remember a lot of the nuances of the film. I thought that that was what was interesting this viewing to be able to like go back and see that really the first half of this film is like about municipal politics more than it is anything else. Like, um, and you know, you talked about doing this in the summer of 2020, talk about uh, a parallel to what was going on at that time with small town politics and, you know, restrictions or not restrictions and all of that. And politicians trying to figure out like how to best position themselves maybe for the next election or whatever. That's the cynic uh, maybe in me coming out a little bit. But I thought that that was really intriguing this time. I, I just remember seeing that shark. I remember like the visuals of that. I remember the blood in the water and just like the bubbling red water that comes up um, after the victims. And so that's really what carried with me uh, was less of the actual story. I forgot about the the whole monologue that Clint that Quint gives about the um, USS Indianapolis yeah. and how like you know, devastating the story that is now that I've like listened to podcasts or I've I've heard about that story from other sources to then see it in the middle of this film was kind of like captivating for me in a way that it hadn't been when I was a kid. I just didn't get that. And so that's why I'm so glad we're doing this show because uh, going back and re-watching some of these that I haven't seen in forever, we're going to come up to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, very much a similar situation where I remember the end of that movie very well. I remember the lights in the sky and I remember the music being played, but I don't know how it gets there. You know, so I'm really excited about checking out that film again, too. It's a very similar situation. Well, and you were talking about just you're, you know, when we're kids, we remember the shark and, you know, the shark is in this movie very little. And uh, we'll 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 talk about that a little bit. But, 
yeah, this movie was based on a book by an author named Peter Benchley. And uh, it's one of the rare times where I think you can definitely say the movie is better than the book because <laughs> I, uh, I recently interviewed a person on my podcast named Kristen Lopez, who wrote a great book for TCM called, but have you read the book where she compares the novel to the film versions of movies and the, the book of Jaws just, I haven't read it, but it just sounds so messy. You know, there is a, there's a part where Hooper um, has an affair with, um, with, with the wife in the book. And so there, there's a lot of salacious things going on. And so it's just, it, it's just interesting to think about some of the changes that came along the movie, but you know, in Spielberg's original plan, the shark was going to be in this movie a whole lot more than what it was. And I think it worked to the benefit that there were a lot of technical malfunctions. Yeah, because what it does is it builds up the suspense. And what I thought was interesting about this film um, is that we know John Williams' score. This is the first time that they worked together. Am I correct? In no, uh, Sugarland was, Sugar really, Land was yeah. the first time. You're right. We talked about that last time. Um, but this is the first time that I believe he's Oscar nominated for uh, one of his scores going along with Spielberg. And the, the music adds to it so much. And of course, everybody knows that Don Don dun 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 you know like that that suspenseful buildup but i like kind of the revelry that this score provides too when your our heroes think that they are mm -hmm. outsmarting this shark there's like this like whimsy to the score that he brings that i thought was really cool too so it like you know even the the music is something to go back and pay attention to because of course like you remember the the beats of the score but like the it's the areas in between the interludes that happen that i think make it a really special and really full piece it's kind of interesting that you know like i was just reading up on john williams because he just had his uh, annual concert at the hollywood bowl and going back and like reading what he was nominated for versus what he won for but what about you like when did you get to really see this film for the first time and did you just watch it like this is probably one of those as a classic film geek do you are you like obligated to <laughs> keep up your membership do you have to watch this film like every six months or what it, how does that work this movie was on tv all the time when we were kids i feel like when yes uh, right tbs and tnt both and i remember i remember vividly i probably saw it for the first time full length when i was in junior high um and i remember vividly they would run it in the summer this was when roy scheider was still alive and i remember little vignettes that he and Richard Dreyfus filmed specifically for TNT that they would put in the middle of the movie. I think it would be, it would have been like Jaws 20th, 25th anniversary or something like that. And so that was the first time. And of course, you know, you're watching it on cable with commercials. Some of it might've been, might not have been edited, but then I remember watching it full through for the first time, like on a DVD, probably in high school or whatever. But I, of course, had seen a lot of it on TV before, but no, it just, it strikes me. It was, it's just as effective now, 20 some years later than it was the first time I saw it. It's probably an even better movie now mm -hmm. than the first time I saw it, because you're right. There's so many other nuances and subtleties and, you know, John Williams score is so visceral. Um, but I think the reason why maybe it was looked down upon when it first came out is it's deceptively simple and there's so much more going on than meets the eye. It's just like the movie. It's deceptively simple when you, uh, when you first think about it and what actually meets the eye, but as you explore it more and more, and as you get older and start to appreciate, you know, the first act with all the small town politics, and then when you appreciate the three main characters and how they're all so different and how they all approach 
you know, defeating the shark so differently. Uh, it, it really is remarkable. And it's a movie that just, it wears better as the years go along. Yeah, totally. And like you said, I think it's to the benefit that we don't see the shark a ton because when we do, it is way more impactful to me that you're getting this glimpse of this like monster and you don't, I mean, it's really only on screen for seconds at a time. And so you never truly get like until Hooper's in the shark cage. That's really the first time you get like an actual like image of the full scale of the Mm -hmm. shark. Um, But before that, and I mean, that that happens what like three fourths of the way through the film, if not longer, you know, that's getting towards the end of the film, really. Um, But I think that it makes this menace of like what's in the water just that much more terrifying. And I think that that's why, you know, like, even though there are still shark attacks that happen, but they're rare enough where they become like national news most of the time when they happen, you know? Uh And so uh, it's just interesting that like, it's one of the first things you think about when you go into the ocean or when you go into a body of water, at least I do still to this day is like, is there going to be this huge shark that's going to come and get me? And I think it's because um, that kind of horror almost, trope in a way but i guess like spielberg does it so well and and i I wonder how much of horror was impacted and influenced from this film that you don't see the monster nearly as much as you think that you maybe would going into a film called jaws where um you know the the shark is really supposed to be a character all of its own so i just think that it's it's well done and really well written too Uh i thought it was like you know the fact that you get the municipal politics and then it transitions into this hero's journey of these three guys going out on the orca and uh, that's kind of one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is that we've talked about the use of vehicles so much in spielberg's uh previous two works now duel it's all about cars it's all about that car and it's about that truck sugarland express Lots of cars, lots of cop cars. Um, they're riding across Texas, lots of landscapes and everything. We don't get so much the cars in this, but the Orca kind of becomes, I mean, our pinnacle setting for the climax of this film. And so um, it's interesting how that's used and how uh, the shots almost, I feel like the interior shots that he was able to get in Sugarland Express almost carry over into the Orca, especially when like, he's trying to build the suspense of the engine is going to go out on them. And then it's like, then they're going to be stranded at sea. What are they going to do? Um, I, I thought that that was a, a tie in that I noticed kind of a connection point between these three films so far that I definitely would not have picked up on ever before. Well, and the Orca is another character. Uh movie and you know and of course it becomes lore with you know that wonderful line you're going to need a bigger boat um but you know it it, just to see it you know slowly get dismantled as the finale goes along until you know you don't see it anymore um but but you're right it feels so it feels so confined and it's so claustrophobic especially when the three of them are in there and you know especially as you mentioned before when quint's doing his wonderful indianapolis monologue uh, it, it just you you feel every you feel the seasickness almost that you would feel on this boat and it becomes so visceral and it like i said it, it's such another character in the movie but yeah it just 
really paints this wonderful, wonderful picture. And it's such a great setting because, you know, you, you know, the first act is all beaches and it's all small town. And then you go to these little cramped quarters in the last act of the movie. But the reason I think the movie works so well is you have three incredible actors Mm -hmm. at the center of this. And none of these three guys were names at the box office you know i think spielberg was encouraged at the time to cast bigger names i think i think you know paul newman had been bandied about john voight had been bandied about there were several actors who had been brought on but to cast you know first of all roy scheider as brody who had made a splash a few years before in the french connection and but was not a name that would sell tickets you know richard dreyfus at that point wasn't a name that was going to sell tickets and certainly robert shaw uh, who, you know, was a respected character actor, but to have just three solid actors at the center, because the shark is the star of the movie, but you had to have these three guys who the audience could identify with. And I think people tend to forget these are really great acting performances from these three actors, especially, and they all bring their own sort of unique gift to the table you know i love that you know the character of hooper brings science into the mix the character of quint brings you know this sort of seafaring danger to the mix and then you've got brody who's kind of uh staggering in the middle he's this new york cop who's sort of this fish out of water um you know to use a pun maybe but uh, well done i appreciate it (laughs) who's kind of this fish out of water and he's using his street smarts that he used on the streets of New York out here and the danger of the open sea. And so, and of course that's what ends up prevailing in the end, but that, that's why I would almost add like three and a half yeah. actors because I think Murray Hamilton as uh, Vaughn as the mayor in this like really helps kind of push along yeah. the, the story in the first act because God, I loved him. He uh-huh. is, he is every like horrible politician all in uh just one character and i love the cynicism that spielberg brings mm-hmm. to that character you know i mean clearly this is based around a book that i haven't read so i mean mm-hmm. i'm assuming that there is a character in the book as well um that like that is like this but this is like again small town mayor looking out for not only um you know his interest in like getting the town the economy of the town continuing to grow but also in his own re-election and how he's going to be perceived and it really isn't until there's the last shark attack and he says he's smoking that cigarette in the hospital which again is hilarious to see in 2023 (laughs) but he's smoking a cigarette in the hospital and he looks at brody and he says my kid was also in that water and like that's when it finally hits him and then that is kind of when he exits the movie really i don't even know don't that see, him we see him again after that and it's just like that's when um they go to quint and they say okay we'll pay what you said what was it ten thousand dollars or whatever uh-huh. um that he wanted to uh to get paid for this and that he was going to go take out this shark and so i i think that like the four of them together really propel this movie in a way that just makes it so enjoyable to watch even it's even though it's a suspenseful film and what do you think i mean i know that we're not necessarily go beat to beat in this uh particular podcast that's not the format that we're, we're really going for here but what do you think makes this the first summer blockbuster like what's the ingredients what what is it that drew people to the theaters to have to see this film over something else I think it was sort of a mix of a lot of different aspects, but I think that, 
certainly it was sort of the salaciousness of just you know uh, you it, it was it was hearkening back to monster movies it's hearkening back to stuff like king kong it's hearkening back to you know frankenstein all that kind of stuff but it's bringing you sort of this new uh, this new sort of point of view that spielberg was bringing you know and sort of his um you, you know and sort of this new wave that was coming along especially in the mid 70s where i think audiences you know, you think about where America was in the mid seventies, we're coming out of Vietnam, we're coming out of Watergate. Uh, it was, you know, the late sixties, early seventies was a very dark time in America. And I think audiences were longing a bit for escapism. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that hit right away. I think that I, you know, everyone, everyone loves a good adventure story. Everyone loves, you know, a good, but the fact that also this isn't just, you know, an escape is fair. This actually has some meat to it, and it actually has some solid storytelling and solid acting and really great artistry. And I think that also the fact that it did come out in the summer, and it's a movie about summer. It's a movie about the danger that's lurking behind, you know, the comforts that we have during this time of year and the things that everybody looks forward to. And so I think that combined with everything was just what was happening. Because you think about this movie really hits and the last huge big blockbuster that had been out was the godfather just three years earlier and they couldn't be two different movie more two more different movies and so the fact that america's you know tastes might have been changing just a little bit so i think i think the fact that america needed escapism and the fact that spielberg was offering something a little different was what everyone was sort of responding to and i think this is like you know we talked about this in our intro episode but i think that what makes spielberg spielberg is the ability to walk this line of great characters and crowd-pleasing films. Mm -hmm. Like we talk about, you know, like what is a popcorn flick? Independence Day is a great example mm -hmm. of a movie I will watch countless times over and over again. The characters in that movie are not well-written. They're not, you know, like they're not deep, but I can watch that movie every single year around the 4th of July and mm -hmm. absolutely just devour that film and love it. Um, but I don't I, I go in there expecting it to be more of just like an action flick and just to be a cop, a popcorn film um, to, you know, like we just had another Mission Impossible come out. That's what that franchise has thrived on. You know, it's um, as much as people enjoy the character that Tom Cruise has developed there. It's more about the action and like what way is he going to try to kill himself for this film, mm -hmm. you know, with stunts. But like it, I, I think that what Spielberg does is on top of that puts in this great monologue this oscar worthy performance um by robert shaw about the uss indianapolis in the middle of this like suspenseful horror and and the way that he films that like you were saying makes it so claustrophobic it makes you put puts you in the uncomfortableness of that because that scene they're joking they're laughing they're having all of these um you know all this like camaraderie they're finally coming together the three of them are finally communicating they're drinking they're having a good time and then uh is it hooper that asked him about his tattoo yeah and then from there it's just like it devolves into this like really awkward very like tense just like eerie situation and then at the end of it, Quint just kind of laughs it off and just goes right back because that's like his attitude about it. You know, after he says that line about 1100 men going into the water and only 300 coming out or whatever. Um, and then he's just like, yep, so that happened, you know, and then they just kind of continue to move on. And I think it's that it's how he develops his characters. I love that he makes Brody 
a guy who is spending his first summer at Amity because what that does is that allows us as an audience to be Brody like that. Like he doesn't have this wide range of experience on this beach that makes him unrelatable to the audience. We are him because this is our first summer that we're spending on this beach too. Now, of course, four years later, he'll have Jaws too, right? And by the way, hilarious that in Jaws 2, which of course Spielberg doesn't do, thankfully, but Jaws 2, the town re-elects uh, Vaughn. <laughs> I, I love that they re-elect him. He's, he's mayor still. And so I think that that's hilarious about Jaws 2. Um, but I like that Brody is our intro, our way of jumping into a character here. Yeah, totally. And I love that each of them, like I said, bring their own sort of uh, point of view to the mix but what i love uh, i think richard dreyfus brings such I, he brings some of the levity to the movie that you're longing for when he comes on the screen and when hooper enters the picture it there's just there's this funny witty humor that suddenly enters the picture and i love the chemistry that he has with robert shot you couldn't have two more different actors together on screen and you know there's the, the, there's all these rumors about you know maybe richard dreyfus and robert shaw didn't quite get along off screen which played into the scenes on screen and so it's just it's fun to see that and to see the sort of their interplay and to see them sort of goading each other but i love uh, richard dreyfus's um sort of interplay with murray hamilton too when he's just you know telling him off that's uh, those are those are some great scenes as well but uh, what i wanted to ask you though is um do you have a favorite moment or a favorite scene in the movie craig i love i i mean i keep coming back to him but I love when uh, Brody and uh, Vaughn are really going at it. And because I think it shows you that even like in the discussions that we have today between, you know, whether it be police and politicians or whether it be activists and uh, the government or whatever the case may be, like that this has been going on for a long time. And so I as a political nerd and a political junkie, I really enjoyed those scenes um quite a bit and just like that give that pull that push and pull of like the the chief is trying to be the hero here is trying to do something for the entire town for their benefit but he just can't get past that bureaucracy and i think that that's uh interesting like villain in and of itself that is sort of a subtext to this film so all the scenes that that in that first half of the movie and then of course the second half of the movie really becomes like a separate film to me. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's connected, clearly. There's connective tissue there. We introduce all of our main three characters in the first half, but we go on this journey with them. And I would say in that, it's the stuff in the cabin. It's the USS Indianapolis. It's the um, joking around, kind of like them letting their guard down and allowing themselves to become friendlier with one another. The dialogue that's delivered in those scenes is just great for me. What about you? <laughs> I always have different views every time I watch this movie, but th this time watching it, I really was into, you know, just the suspenseful moments. And I think the opening of this movie, first of all, is incredible because it just, it sets the tone and you don't see the shark at all at the beginning. And, you know, this, this poor girl named Chrissy gets torn apart. And I love the behind the scenes stories about how, you know, there were two ropes on her legs underneath the water and she didn't know exactly where she was going to get pushed and pulled. So those are some of her real natural reactions. I think Spielberg took some 
delight in doing that, which you can tell off screen. Probably couldn't yeah. do it today. No, probably not. <laughs> but but yeah, it's so great. And then also, I love how you always think you see the shark, but you really don't. And there's just wonderful things. You know, Spielberg really, and he has said this in interviews, he really took inspiration from Alfred Hitchcock, where Hitchcock was quoted as saying, he loves playing the audience like an organ. I hit this button and they laugh. I hit this button and they scream. And so he really, you know, takes that time. I think one of the great horror moments of the movie is when Dreyfus is underwater looking at Ben Gardner's boat and all of a sudden that corpse pops up out of nowhere and you see the reaction on Dreyfus's face and that's one of the great jump scare moments in any movie and it still works today and of course you know the to use our friend Jeremy's word iconic is the scene you know where Brody is shoveling all the chum off the boat and all of a sudden you see Jaws and it's full glory behind him and just the reaction from Roy Scheider and it's just a perfect moment because what's great about that is right before that you've got Roy Scheider you know just you know shoveling all that off the boat and he's saying some funny dialogue so the audience is laughing right before the shark pops up so it's once again it's spielberg playing with our emotions and you know and of course the other scene that stood out for me is of course i always think the tragic ironic part of the movie is quint's death you know to have survived the sinking of the indianapolis only to die that way and it's an excruciating movie death um that is really played and i think that that's what makes jaws different from so many other movies of this type is that you really you feel the ramifications it's not just poof somebody's dead it's like you really feel the agony of somebody's death in this movie well, because like for a second there, you think that it might be redeemable, right? Like if you had never seen this film before, but then you start seeing the blood coming out of his mouth. I mean, like they he really goes to town with this particular death, because in a lot of the other ones, like the little boy and the Alex and with Kittler, Chrissy, yeah. uh, you're just seeing you're just seeing the them kind of fall down or they get they get pulled around a little bit but then they immediately like submerge and then you see the blood come up you don't see kind of like right there in front of your eyes the shark just eating them they kind of get worse and worse because you see chrissy just get sort of pulled around and then alex kittner you see the pool of blood and then the later on the guy who's in the pond with the boys you know you see his leg gets chopped off and all of that and then of course Quint is sort of the grand finale of everything, but yeah, yeah it, it is sort of, it's very, very gradual. You talk about the beginning of this film and it's really reminiscent of another horror film that you and I grew up on in 1996 when Wes Craven brings scream about and like you see Drew Barrymore and you assume that she's going to be a major character in scream and spoiler alert to a film from 1996, but she's killed immediately. And yeah. so it helps set the tone of like, again, this monster um, that is going to be terrifying this town. And I, I just think that it really helps build the suspense right from the beginning. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it just amazes me every time I watch this, what an audacious movie this is for somebody's third outing, his second, uh, you know, theatrical film. But I, you know, just doing some research and watching interviews with Spielberg, he said, it's amazing how little I knew about everything. He said, I thought you could just film out on the open ocean with no problem. He said, I had no idea about, you know, having to match shots because if the sun is shining on the ocean at one point, it's different colors. It's gray one moment, it's blue the next. And so you would have to go back. And then, you know, the currents and the waves and everything. And so he said, it's amazing, 
you know, how, how much, and, you know, how over budget he ended up going just because he was unaware of all this sort of location shooting and you know of course the shark not working and this movie by all rights should have been an absolute disaster and yet somehow through you know the miracle of the movies it became the stalwart that we're still talking about yeah it's it's just uh incredible that you know it continues to live on and it really cements his this is like the start of his legacy really because after this he goes on this run now i mean like (laughs) We're going to see 1941, which is a film I've never seen before. It's it's generally thought of as one of his worst movies, but he's going to do in the next, you know, um, seven years, he's going to go from Jaws to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's going to do 1941 and then he does Raiders and then he does E.T. I mean, these are like seminal works. If you think about the show Stranger Things, it's almost all predicated on Spielberg in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Ready Player One, another piece of pop culture, which he would go back and revisit and become the director for the movie version. If you go back and read that novelization, nearly all of that is predicated on Spielberg properties. And that's why he changed the uh, major scenes in Ready Player One to um, give homage to his favorite directors like Stanley Kubrick and The Shining. And, you know, so like, it's just it's really incredible the run he's about to go on here and he becomes Steven Spielberg, the Steven Spielberg that we know. And he had no clue what he had on his hands. You know, I love the story that Martin Scorsese tells in the documentary on HBO max that, uh, you know, he and Spielberg would sneak into the back of theaters just to hear the audience reaction. And when they would be driving down Hollywood Boulevard and they would see the lines all around the block, you know, trying to get into Grauman's to see Jaws and that, you know, the movie business and the movie model was changing, you know, and so it was, it was the sea change and it was sort of the, the movie model that we have experienced up till now. I think the movie models kind of in the midst of some kind of change right now, but it was certainly, you know, something that, you know, multiplexes began because theaters couldn't show it enough in a day because there was so much demand. So they had to build more theaters and more screens so more people could see it. And it was mostly due to Jaws. Of course, Star Wars would really put the period on the end of the sentence two years later, but Jaws really sort of was the birth of that. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think that that's why he still thought of, I mean, look at like what he's doing, you know, much more about this. I'm speaking out of my wheelhouse, but what he and Paul Thomas Anderson and Martin Scorsese are doing with TCM right now. Uh Yeah. I mean, they are, you know, trying to keep, you know, film at the forefront of, you know, American culture, you know, movies are so important and have been so culturally important, especially to the 20th century, you know, I think they still are important today as, you know, as we're recording this, you know, just as Barbenheimer is sort of taking the country by storm and the world by storm. I think movies still can be a cultural landmark. And I think that, you know, both, you know, Spielberg and Scorsese, especially, you know, were stalwarts of that in the seventies. And so um, they're, they're trying to carry on the language of film as best as they can. And, you know, it's, it's such a great art form and, you know, only, you know, through something like the movies can something like Jaws exist. And it's, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, looking at this, its budget was $9 million and then its box office ended up being 476 million. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine a film doing that today? That's what's interesting. Okay. Can we go on a tangent here for a second? Mm -hmm. We talk about the box office today and what's going on and kind of Barbie and Oppenheimer aside from this summer, it's been a really disappointing summer at the box office. I mean, even, um, 
Dead Reckoning, the part one of the Mission Impossible movie. Uh, as we sit here today, it's made about 130 million domestically on a budget of something like 269 million. Uh -huh. Now it's going to get more money from internationals. I don't know the totals there, but uh, I'm a big Disney guy. Elemental was kind of a slow burn all summer. I mean, it's made more money than it uh, probably did at the outset because there really wasn't a lot of kids uh, programming going on in the summer. Um, but also things like Haunted Mansion just open to uh, pretty good reviews from the audience base that it was coming out of, but lackluster box office. And so I, I just think that what you see is these huge budgets in films now. And it seems like so much of that is CG driven. It's so much of that is, um, you know, like we have to de-age uh, Indiana Jones so we can show him in this so it's going to be a 300 million dollar budget and then the movie goes on to only make you know whatever it was 160 million domestically and so I wonder if there's going to be some kind of reversion back to some of these more like Steven Spielberg Chris Nolan practical effects now I say that Steven Spielberg becomes one of the godfathers of CG when he does Jurassic Park. So it's not like he doesn't also uh, go with the times here, but to see like a, a movie that can be made now, granted $1970, uh, $1975. Um, but even if that film is made today, you know, do they try to make it for like a hundred million, 150 million? And then it doesn't have necessarily that, that big of an impact. I just think that, these budgets for films are getting so inflated now that these tentpole movies that they want to have as summer box uh, box office films are just not drawing the people to them. I think, of course, I sit here saying that as we're recording this, Barbie is dominating the box office and just had a wonderful second weekend at the box office. I think it is a cultural phenomenon that people are talking about at the office or uh, however they're gathering. But like, I, I just I think that the era of the summer blockbuster is starting to wane a little bit. What What are your thoughts about that? Because I mean, I guess I say it's a tangent and it kind of is. It's not about Spielberg necessarily. Mm -hmm. But it is the fact that this was the first summer blockbuster. And are we starting to see now this being the birth of the summer blockbuster? Are we getting to the death of the summer blockbuster at this point? I don't know if we're necessarily getting to the death, but I think that audiences are probably craving something a little more. I don't know if the word for it would be, you know, you know, I think the word original is being sort of bandied about a little too much, but something a little more authentic, um, something, IP driven something, something. Yeah. I think, you know, not to say the Barbie's not IP driven, no, or the, but I think Barbie is disguised as IP driven, uh, but it's totally an original idea. Well, what's wild about Barbie is that my son wanted to see it, but by all reports, I should not bring my son to see this film. And so that's what I will say about Barbie is that it is IP driven. But um, if it was completely IP driven, it would be a kid's film geared towards kids. And that's, I don't think what Greta Gerwig was going for. But, you know, I think about when you and I were growing up in the nineties, the nineties was a golden age for the indie, for the indie movie. Um, and so maybe, you know, and not to say we did, we had huge blockbusters in the nineties. We had Jurassic park. We had, you know, you know, even things like Saving Private Ryan, which made a ton of money, Independence Day, Independence Day you know, so uh, so that's not to say that they can't coexist. But, you know, in the 90s, you know, so many 
of those great indie filmmakers that we think of now, whether it's Paul Thomas Anderson or Quentin Tarantino or Wes Anderson or people like that who came along during that time and really flourished. Um, maybe, maybe we're headed for that wave again, you know, and really, cause a lot of, a lot of movies made by those kind of filmmakers would probably be relegated to streaming now, but maybe people, people are ready to see things like that on the big screen again, to sort of, you know, make their mark. I don't know. We'll see what happens in the next couple of years. Yeah. And maybe I, you know, I just think that like, there's this, delineation now between something has to be uh audience pleaser they we made jokes about it on the network feed um a couple of years ago when the oscars wanted to do a popular oscars category because of all these marvel movies that were not getting any kind of attention at the box office or they were getting tons of attention at the box office no awards consideration but it's almost like you have to have this camp where it's just a blockbuster or just a crowd pleaser, or it has to be this artistic film that's up for awards. And I just think that if one person can make that those two camps coexist, it's Steven Spielberg. I mean, he, he has his entire career and like this film gives you little bits of character interaction between Quint and Brody and Hooper, but it also gives you a fantastical practical effect of this great big shark as well and i think that that's why it endures and that's why it's still terrifying children to this day uh who are getting in the water yeah and it's so interesting because we talk about i think i think now in our day and age i think everything's become so niche we're all in our own little bubbles you know everyone just goes toward what they like and it seems like even even the most popular movies and the most popular TV shows aren't necessarily even mainstream anymore. Um, I, could, they all kind of have their own separate fan bases. And it's funny, if you look at the year Jaws came out at the Oscars, Jaws got a Best Picture nomination. I don't know if a movie like Jaws would get a Best Picture nomination in 2023, um, unless unless it you know hit in, a, in the way that it did. But I'm looking at the Best Picture nominees that year. It was Barry Lyndon, which was a period drama by Stanley Kubrick, Dog Day Afternoon, a crime drama with Al Pacino. You had Jaws, you had Nashville, Robert Altman's comedy, and then the big winner that year was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Those are five different movies totally different that, that cater to totally different audiences and so and and you know and star wars was nominated for best picture raiders of the lost ark was nominated for best picture so a tide kind of turned i think once we hit the early 2000s i think well and i mean like you know the the dirty secret about that is that there was really one person behind the push for that and he's now in jail okay. for <laughs> lots of uh you know uh for tons of convictions of sexual assault and that's harvey weinstein we talked about you know you mentioned the indie push in the 90s and miramax is part of the huge driving force of that and that was the weinstein brothers really working together um but yeah i just think that it's it's interesting we'll talk probably i it'll be it'll be interesting to see what spielberg movie we are on when the oscars happen uh -huh. presuming that they actually do happen in march although uh depending on how long the strike will go on who knows uh, when we will get the oscars back but it's it'll be interesting to talk about that conversation again then about how the oscars have changed or how awards have changed um because i think it's been a it has been a huge tonal shift in that but it'll be interesting to see what gets audiences back you know yeah I just i'm it just takes one successful movie yeah and it was is barbie that you it know but be. now you know 
immediately there's Mattel, I think, is taking the wrong, uh, they're, they're taking the, the wrong, wrong story, the wrong lesson from Barbie. And they're saying, okay, now we're going to have, we just greenlit something like 15 different uh, potential properties mm-hmm. on Mattel toys. And it's like, that's not why people went to go see it. They didn't go see it because of Mattel. They went no. to go see it because of this particular, and, and they had killer marketing. Mm-hmm. That's something that, you know, you and I have discussed a ton about Disney. Mm-hmm this summer and uh even before that the marketing for disney has just been horrible okay. these last uh few films and so it, it'll be interesting to see where things go from here but uh, i thought that that was a conversation worth having because okay. spielberg does establish this is what people consider the very first summer blockbuster and we're definitely in that time of the year right now as we're sitting and recording this absolutely and you know jaws still and our i know our uh our friend Ryan Lutons is listening to this because this is he considers this the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> he mentioned that in our other podcast quite a bit, but it really, to me, I can't. You know, it's hard to think of you know another movie that could have been made in 1975 that still has the same effect on you all these years later. It's still suspenseful. You still feel all of those moments, and I think it's just because Spielberg just found that right balance of, you know, we were, you know, the seventies was a time of really gritty filmmaking. And I think that he was able to balance that, you know, with whimsy, but also it does. And you like, and you, you mentioned it with John Williams score, you know, it does feel a little like a seafaring adventure just a little bit too. And it, and it draws back on all of the, you know, literary heroes that we think of, you know, there's, you know, certainly some Captain Ahab and Moby Dick uh, imagery in this movie as well. So it it just plays on so many different themes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really fun film. I I'm glad that I went back and revisited it because it had been so long and I was just like, oh yeah, it's Jaws. I mean, there's a big shark, like, you know, and there's a couple of guys that go out and hunt the shark. But watching this as an adult is a way different experience than watching it as a kid. And so that's why I'm excited now that we get to go see some aliens next time we discuss uh, Steven Spielberg, right? Spielberg's first of several uh, interpretations of aliens. Yes. So I'm excited uh, to revisit um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That comes out just a couple of years later, same year as uh, Star Wars comes out. Yeah, 1977, we'll get into it in the episode, is a great year for movies, underreported. Yeah, and then uh, after that, just so you can kind of think about your viewing of Steven Spielberg, if you're watching along with us, uh, 1941 is after that, and then we get into Raiders of the Lost Ark. So those are the next three that are up uh, for for us here. All right, so the last episode on Sugarland, you and I started our ranking of Steven Spielberg movies. We 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 differed. Uh, you put Duel at number one and Sugarland at number two. I put Sugarland at number one and Duel at number two. So where do you put Jaws now? I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> much like I think history, I think history is on my side here. And I imagine maybe on your side as well. Uh, but I would put Jaws number one here and then I would maintain the other rankings. I, I need to start writing these down yeah. or else I'm going to really screw this up. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I should start a list on my notes app right now. That's exactly what I'm going to do. But I would say that Jaws uh, two days so far his best work yes I, will it stay there we'll have to see <laughs> i i i'm can, looking at, at you ryan luton at, at this moment i very much agree yeah jaws but i still put sugarland now at number two and duel at number three 
Um, but, but yeah, but yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens when, uh, we'll, uh, we, we visit our buddy Richard Dreyfus again very soon. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm excited to do that. And also a little bit of Terry Gar and yeah, so it'll be, uh, it's interesting. I'm, uh, Close Encounters is a movie that we talked about on classics recently too. This is our friend, Steve Sykes favorite movie. So we'll, be, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to sort of revisit that. So I'm, I'm anxious to get into that, but also, I posted for those of you who have joined our Facebook group. Thank you, first of all. And I did ask the question to uh, give me your favorite Spielberg film and why. And there's a few of you that were, uh, that posted that. And uh, I'll just I'll read off the ones who have so far. Uh, Mike Taylor says that Saving Private Ryan is his favorite Spielberg movie. And he says, as a proud army brat, I know a little bit about the sacrifice the people of our armed forces had to give up. Obviously, I don't know everything, but everyone involved made us feel like we were there. The cast and crew give us as realistic of a story and atmosphere that cannot be compared. From what I remember from interviews, that beach scene was so realistic that the veteran who post-traumatic stress disorder were triggered from the sounds and overall feel. Um, let's see. Carol Jean Miller Schaefer, who's a member of my classics group, says that she has three different favorites and uh, for three different and for three different reasons. Um she said E.T., just because it's so magical. Um, Schindler's List, um, for obvious reasons, because it's so haunting. And then number three, Lincoln. She couldn't wait for Lincoln to come out because Lincoln is so important to history and she's a history nerd. She went to the Lincoln Museum in Springfield and they actually have part of the set from that film inside, she said. It's so well done. Um, and then our friend Steve Sykes says Close Encounters of the Third Kind, with the possible exception of Arrival, no other film has nailed the wonder of a first contact with extraterrestrial life like Close Encounters. It functions as both globetrotting mystery and meaningful emotional drama. And then our friend Jeremy Geckner says he doesn't know if it's favorite, but he thinks Minority Report is the most underrated. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, it's really funny because while you're reading through that list, I just happen to like hop on the socials just to uh, see my notifications. And would you believe it that literally at this moment, Ryan Lutons is at a drive-in watching Jaws. Now, I uh, I don't think that we could have timed this recording any better to our friend Ryan Lutons. But no, we love like I love it when we can have jo people join in on the conversation with these. And we're really going to start uh, getting some of your feedback to these episodes as well. So let us know your feedback to Jaws and we can report some of that when we talk about Close Encounters. Uh, also, make sure to give us a rating because that's really helpful to us and join the Facebook page and keep the conversation going. It's been really fun. I mean, I know we're at the big very start. We're what 10% of the way now through yeah. his filmography um, with three films thereabouts. Um, but it's going to be really fun to continue to do this. Yeah, I should say too, we were supposed to have an episode out last week. Totally my fault that we didn't. Uh, the time we were supposed to be recording in my house, there was water coming out of my ceiling from my upstairs bathroom, like a faucet. Um, and I just said to Brandon, I said, I could probably record tonight, but I just think that the world is telling me not to. So uh, <laughs> sorry that we're a little bit delayed here. Maybe we'll try to make sure we get the next one out um, for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, we're 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 headed out, you know, to sort of put a cap on the 70s soon. And the, the 80s is going to be really interesting because Spielberg really starts experimenting in the 80s with some heavier themes and heavier topics. So I'm really I'm really anxious to do that. But, yeah, it's amazing. And you know what? The ending of Jaws has Brody and Hooper swimming off into the horizon. 
So, <laughs> it sure does. You're right. So, yeah. So, so as always, like we've mentioned, you know, please leave us a rating where you can give our podcast more exposure, um, you know, join in on the conversations. We'll, uh, we'll try and be more interactive on there as well. We are on Instagram and Twitter, you know, whatever form Twitter is now, uh, we'll, whatever <laughs> we'll see, but, but yeah, just, uh, just keep, just keep interacting with us and, uh, we'll, we'll be sure to deliver the conversation and maybe, you know, as we as we go along, if there's something, some special topic that might be relevant to what we're doing, we might do a special episode on that. Who knows? You know, we'll just see as we go. But we uh, we thank you so much. And Craig, thanks so much for joining me on this one. Yeah, absolutely. This was a fun one. And I can't wait to uh, see some aliens in the next one. Absolutely. So for Cinematic Horizons, I am Brandon. And I'm Craig. And as always, go and find your horizon line.